Well, uh, before we open our Bibles together this morning, I want to open with a question. And the question is this. How many of you have ever finished a conversation and then sometime later you thought about the things you should have said? All right. I'll, every head nodding on this one, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I have time to choose my words carefully, I can bat about 500. You know, when, when, I, when I have time to think ahead about a conversation, I, about half of the time, I'm like, okay, I feel good about my response. But man, when I'm, I'm just put on the spot, you know, I, I'm always stumbling for words. And, and almost every time, if I'm just put on the spot in a particularly awkward situation or whatever, um, or a hard situation, I come away going, oh, what I should have said was this. And, and it, from all the nods, I'd imagine you feel the same way. Um, whether it's having the right comeback or whether it's knowing what to say when a person's really hurting and you want to bring that right word of, of comfort to them, um, whether it's knowing how to navigate a really tense or awkward situation or whether it's just not saying that thing that you'll regret saying later, right? Um, whether it's any of those things, imagine if you always had the right thing to say. That would be a good thing. be a really good thing. And what we have in our Bible is we have some of the, well, we have the most accurate ancient documents that testify to the things that Jesus of Nazareth said. And in those manuscripts, we never see Jesus going back, oh, guys, I want to apologize for how I handled that last situation, which could have been a good thing as far as just Jesus modeling, you know, good behavior, but you don't see that. Jesus apparently always had the right words for every situation, which is a remarkable thing. And by right words, I don't mean that Jesus always found the common ground. And by right words, I don't mean Jesus never said anything that didn't offend somebody. In fact, Jesus said things that caused people to walk away. Jesus said things that were, by their very nature, divisive. Jesus said things that led to his death. So when I say Jesus always had the right words, what I mean by that is that Jesus never looked back on a conversation saying, I wish I would have said things differently, unlike us. Well, now let's open our Bibles together, and I want to look at one of these examples. Jesus gets put in this, this incredibly tough spot. It's, it's a no-win scenario. Jesus gets put there, and then here's Jesus' response right off the cuff. So this is from uh, what's called the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Um, as those of us who brought our Bibles are, are turning there, I just want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack there in the back, and whether on this visit or a future visit, if you just say, hey, I'd like to get a Bible, um, just pick one up. You don't have to sign anything. Don't even have to let us know. Just please take it as a gift to you. All right, this is from the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at, uh, right now, we'll look at verses 15, 16, and 17. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, oh, we know that you're true, you teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. <laughs> Which is ironic, given what they're doing right there. <laughs> it just jumped out at me now. Um, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they come up with this question. These, these two groups plot together. And who are these two groups? One group is the Pharisees, and the other group is the Herodians. And we don't have time to go into all the details here, but suffice it to say, these are two groups who didn't agree on much of anything. If you gave them 20 different topics, 
they're going to come up with 19 different responses. You know, they, they were at odds on a whole lot of issues. But yet, they come together with wanting to trap Jesus. Evidently, they felt threatened by this man or something. They came together wanting to trap him. Two groups that are normally on opposite sides of just about everything, including taxes. The Pharisees were a deeply religious group. And they believed that the Romans who were occupying their land had no right to do so. They, they hated the heavy tax burden that was placed on them. They would go as far as to say, this is wrong in God's eyes for us to be paying some of these taxes. And then there's the Herodian group. They're, they're more of a political group. <clears throat> there was a, excuse me, a line of folks called the Herods, and the Herodians wanted to advance that line politically. So they were willing to say, all right, Rome, you're in charge. We'll... We'll compromise, we'll, we'll, we'll accommodate so that, uh, that we can promote our political agenda. So you've got these two different groups opposed to this issue of taxes who come together to try to trap Jesus. These groups felt threatened by him. And they put together what a Trekkie would call, let's see if I can pronounce this right, a Kobayashi Maru. Did I get that right? Yeah. We got Trekkie, a Kobayashi Maru. It's also pop culture, do Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi, Kobi, that thing. A KM, a KM is a no-win scenario. This is, this is a situation where there's no way out. And they thought they had one. They thought, we've got Jesus in a, say it for me, Kobe. Yes. They, they thought they had one of these. And here's why. Okay, So if Jesus says to this question, should we pay taxes? If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes. Pharisees, they go back and to say to their people, hey, our people, do you know what Jesus says about taxes? He says we should pay these things. These unjust, burdensome, you know, I shouldn't get all my hostility out this time of year. Um, these, <laughs> these taxes. So, so Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes. Pharisees go back to their people. They say, you know what Jesus said? Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, if Jesus says yes, or says no, don't pay your taxes. If Jesus says no, don't pay your taxes, Herodians go back to their people. And they say, you know what? Jesus is promoting insurrection against Rome. And Rome didn't think kindly of insurrection. In fact, Jesus grew up in a, in a district called Galilee. When Jesus was a young boy, possibly 10 years old, there was a man named Judas the Galilean who led a revolt, and taxes was one of the issues. And what did Rome do to him and 2,000 of his followers? They crucified them and left them to hang on the crosses. So at this impressionable age, Jesus from Galilee likely saw what happened when you didn't pay your taxes and told others to do the same. So Jesus, he knows exactly what he's getting into here. He knows this is a trap. And so he's put on the spot. And he doesn't grab a Twix bar, right? Like that commercial. He just, he just, boom, fires back. And here's, here's what he says. Here's Jesus' response to this apparent trap. No one situation. You can't say yes. You can't say no. But Jesus, it says in Matthew twenty two eighteen, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to a test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him the coin for the tax, which was a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Boo-yah. <laughs> and when they heard it, they said, wow. And they left him and went away. Now, again, this is, 
I look back and I look back at the things I say. And even when I think I said things kind of right, I go, oh, I could have added this and oh, I could have added this. I mean, you should see my, my notes up here. I mean, I spend a lot of time on this. And then even this morning, I'm rewriting things and crossing things out. I always think I could have said it better. 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 Jesus is so interesting to study his words because they sound good on the surface. And when you study them, you realize they're even better, even better than they sounded on the surface. This is more than a quippy comeback that Jesus gave. Much more than a quippy comeback. As his followers reflected on what Jesus said here, and then as they started to live this out, this render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God, as they internalized that and lived it out, it changed the world. It changed the world. And that's what we're going to look at today. Notice Jesus says, hey, show me this coin. Show me this coin. And, and so they bring this coin. Now, it's interesting about these, these coins. Jews were permitted to mint copper coins, but they couldn't mint silver coins, and they couldn't mint gold coins. And the coin you needed to use to pay the tax is this one. You know, he, notice he says, show me the coin for the tax. The denarius was the coin for the tax. You had to use that coin. The Jews couldn't mint their own. They couldn't just collect their own minted coins. They had to use the coin that was minted for them. They had to use the denarius. Now, in a pre-TV world, this was messaging on Rome's part. They didn't have billboards. They didn't have advertisements. They didn't have pop-ups. So they had to get their message out somewhere. So they would use coins as one way to get their message out. And you know what it said on the denarius? On one, yeah, on one side of the denarius, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine, the divine, excuse me, Augustus. And on the back side of that coin, the one that they had to pay the tax with, it had a picture of a Roman god, goddess of peace, and then it had the Latin inscription on it, high priest. So this is the coin. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't pull one out of his pocket because a devout follower of God, you know, that this is blasphemous. Jesus doesn't pull one of his pocket. He says, you guys go find one of those coins. Now, a lot of commentators said that they produced it from their own pockets. Maybe they did. The Bible is silent on that. There's this, this account shows up in three different places, Matthew, Mark, Luke. I looked at all three of them. I didn't see where it says they got the coin from. But Jesus wasn't carrying it. He wasn't carrying it. It's interesting that, uh, that Jesus, even in this little what he didn't do, um, it shows he didn't believe that Caesar had a right to be worshipped. Well, when the conversation was over, everyone went their separate ways. It wasn't Jesus who went home thinking, oh, what I should have said was, it was these two different groups, powerful groups, these two different groups that had schemed together ahead of time who went home going, oh, we dug ourselves into that hole. And what's so fascinating to me is, again, there's so many different layers, and we're just giving you a couple of them. It's so interesting to me how it was predicted of the one who was to come, the one who was to be the Son of God. It was predicted that he would do things like this. There's a book in the Bible called Isaiah. It's found in the Old Testament. It, it predates the time of Jesus by hundreds of years. And throughout the book of Isaiah, there's all these different references to this Messiah who's going to come. And I was, coincidentally, I didn't plan this. I was, coincidentally, I've been reading the Old Testament at night, and at least trying to read the Old Testament at night, read the New Testament in the morning. Coincidentally, I was reading Isaiah, uh, this week, and Matthew this week. And in my reading of Matthew, I came across the passage we're looking at here. And in my reading in Isaiah, I came across this passage. Now, I've got a little bit more to set up here. This is chapter 8. In chapter 7, one of the prophecies that Isaiah makes, he says, there's going to be this child born to a virgin. There's this child that's going to be born. And, and this child is going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so remember that. 
right before this, it says this child, this, who's going to become this, this Messiah, he, he was going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right. Then comes Isaiah 8.10, speaking to these, these folks. You take counsel together, but it's going to come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand, for God is with us. Interesting. You know, there's, there's all these just layers to this, layers to this. You can just keep going and going and going. And, and Matthew, the book of Matthew, is filled with examples where Jesus is put on the spot, and what he says is just right on. A, a chapter, a few verses, actually, before the account that we just read. There's a, the group, the Pharisees that we referenced earlier. They try to chap, trap Jesus with a Kobayashi Maru on divorce. And a few verses after this passage we just read, a group called the Sadducees, they try to trap Jesus in a Kobayashi Maru about the afterlife. And a, just a few verses after that, there's an expert in the law, and he puts Jesus in an apparent Kobayashi Maru regarding the sacred text. And boom, 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 time after time, time after time. What Jesus says makes them go, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing. And while it would be fun to explore these texts, what I want to do is I want to focus on one that we've already read. I want to look at the last part of that, that that idea of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, and I want to focus in on that today. Because it fits in this, this theme that we've been talking about, this series that we've been in for the last five weeks. And what we've been doing for the last five weeks together, if you're just joining us, is we've been looking at, at how what Jesus said and what he did changed the world. It changed the world. So many of the things we just take for granted, so many of the things that are just part of the fabric of our culture, it, it, it can be traced directly back to things Jesus said and did that then were passed along and lived out by his followers. And the one we're going to look at today has to do with politics. Politics. And, and here's a statement that I'd like you to write down um, in your notes. Inside your bulletin, uh, we always try to put a note sheet in there, and there's a place to, to write this down. And don't get nervous as you're writing this down. Don't get nervous as you're writing this down or too excited. Um, what I'm asking you to write down here is, is this. Our understanding of limited government is part of Jesus' legacy. I'll say that again. Our understanding of limited government is part of Jesus' legacy. Now, the reason I don't want you to get too excited is if you're a big, you have a clear definition of what this means, you're like, woohoo, preach it. I'm not going to go there. If you're also threatened because you're going, oh, there's a certain camp that believes a certain thing that this means, I'm probably not going there either. The contrast I'm making is between limited and unlimited. There was a belief in the ancient world, widespread belief, that government's power should be unlimited. Unlimited. That what whoever was in charge said, there, there was no higher authority that they had to report to on that. That they were the highest authority that there was. You know, certain beliefs are so much a part, part of our culture. They're just woven into the fabric that we simply assume it's always been this way, including ideals like democracy, freedom of religion, and civil rights. We just, a lot of us just assume because that's what we grew up with that that's how it's always been, and that's not the case. Was Jesus the only one advocating for these things? No. But you can trace the widespread change throughout the world directly back to his teaching and the the effect it had on his followers. And one of them was this. I encourage you to write this down related to what we just said. Jesus taught his disciples there are things that don't belong to Caesar. And that was huge. Jesus taught his disciples there are things that don't belong to Caesar. In the Roman world of Jesus' day, 
The line between church and state was blurred, to say the least. Because Caesar, he is both the ruler and he is a god. So there is no higher authority. I'm a ruler, I'm a god, it's all in one. There is no division between church and state because I am the ultimate authority. Jesus said there's some things that don't belong to Caesar. In fact, it could go off on this tangent. I find great irony in the fact that it was the state, not the church, that originally felt threatened by church-state separation. Well, in just one sentence, in just one sentence that comes out of his mouth when he's put on the spot, Jesus summarized and popularized the Jewish notion that there was an authority that is higher than Caesar's. And everyone, including Caesar himself, would be held accountable to that. Wow. And as early as the third century, you find writings like this. This is a guy named Tertullian. He was a person who thought deeply on the teachings of Jesus. And as he reflected deeply on the teachings of Jesus, as early as the third century in the 200s, he's writing things like this. It is a fundamental human right It is a privilege of nature that every man or woman should worship according to his own convictions. Free will and not force should lead us. Within 200 years, within 200 years of Jesus, followers of his are are taking these ideas and bringing them to the world. And here's one that's even 100 years before this. So we're getting close to the time of Jesus here. Even 100 years before the last one, here's, here's, a, here's another writing from a, a Christian thinker who's trying to, to, to take these ideas and these teachings of Jesus and, and articulate them. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity, either in locality or in speech or in customs. But while they dwell in the cities of Greeks and barbarians, as the lot of each is cast, their citizenship is nevertheless quite amazing and admittedly paradoxical. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them. Every fatherland is a foreign country. They have a citizenship that isn't primarily in this world. I mean, this isn't the makings of a new religion. This is a different understanding of religion altogether than most of the ancient world held. Something without precedent was taking root. Rather than adopting the gods of a particular religion or bowing to the gods of those who conquered in their name, followers of Jesus took this notion of one God who is above all others, took it to the world. And how shocking was the turn of events? How shocking was the turn of events that Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire? You know, I've heard that so many times before, but I really thought about that this week. Okay, you've got Rome, right? Rome is in charge of their world. Their power is without... No one can stand up to it at the time of Jesus. Nobody could. No one could stand up to Rome at the time of Jesus. So Rome has this absolute power. And when this person named Jesus rises up, they have him killed. The power of Rome has him killed. So the, the, the leader of this movement is killed by Rome. His followers that continued to spring up, there was a long period of time where they tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. So you've got the most powerful nation in the world killing the leader and trying to wipe out the followers off the face of the earth. And 300 years later, the official religion of that empire is what? 
It's Christianity. How, how, how does that happen? How does that happen? And not only that, the cross they put Jesus on to kill him is now a symbol of victory in the nation that used it as a torture device, a humiliation device, a, a way to, to scare and intimidate. Crazy. Now, for the record, I need to just go off on this rabbit trail for just a bit. For the record, the new blurring of church and state that happened when Caesar said, now I'm a Christian, that new blurring, I'm not saying that was necessarily a good thing. It did some good things, but I don't know that it was a good thing. A brand new set of challenges emerged when the first Caesar claimed to be a Jesus follower. In fact, it can be argued the church still hasn't recovered from that in, in many ways. When Christianity was a crime, you had as many nominal Christians then as there are nominal chainsaw jugglers now. Because you had to be all in. You had to be all in. In, in the day, you were either all in as a Christian or you weren't. The price was too high to just be casual about your faith. Gatherings that had previously, before this, they had met secretly in catacombs. They were now housed in magnificent buildings. Leaders who that had been recruited on the basis of devotion to Christ were now replaced by those who had the most political savvy. And when Christians gained power, what many of them did with this new power is to use their newfound authority to persecute and outlaw not only non-believers' beliefs, but if there was a Christian, brother and sister in Christ, who believed something theologically different that they didn't like, they would have those people sometimes tortured and killed because they could. The blurring of church and state failed the church as much as it had failed the state. And, and I believe we see a course correction happening you know, in, in our world today. A um, hundred years ago, this is an interesting stat, a hundred years ago, 80% of the followers of Jesus lived in Europe and the United States. Within our lifetimes, that's going to flip. That's going to flip. In our lifetimes, 80% of the Christians will live in Latin America. They'll live in the Southern Hemisphere. They'll live in Africa and in the East. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. But it's interesting to see what happens when the Jesus movement takes power, when the Jesus movement gets too affluent. I believe that uh, we see the Jesus movement that's flourishing. I don't just believe. That's just statistically there, the Jesus movement is flourishing among the poor and persecuted while it's undergoing a much-needed pruning among the rich and secure. And someday we'll come back to that. It's very interesting to see. So someday we'll come back to that. But right now, let's get on point, back on point. And I want us to consider again how shocking it is that Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in, in a political way that was so different than the politics of the time. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, he is considered the greatest of the Caesars. And as people look back, and history looks back at all his accomplishments, the, the accomplishment, the accomplishment that is the most celebrated, the accomplishment of Caesar that is the most, that the, well, I shouldn't say accomplishment, the most celebrated and influential event, because Caesar had nothing to do with this, the, the most celebrated influential event to occur during the reign of the greatest Caesar was the birth of a baby that he never heard of, in a part of the world that he never visited. Interesting. And I love this next one. Um, when, when, when Jesus was sentenced to death, he was sentenced to death by an underling 
several layers down of Caesar, a man named Pilate. And when Pilate said, okay, I give the word, no one could question it. He had authority, he had absolute authority to be able to say, Jesus is going to die. So Jesus dies on the, the, the command of an underling of Caesar. Within 300 years, get this, I didn't know this before this week. Within 300 years, there was a Caesar who was submitting to a Christian bishop. There was a Caesar who did something. The bishop said, you shouldn't have done that. And the Caesar said, oh. And the Caesar, the Caesar even went this far. He confessed his guilt before God, and he submitted to a month of public penance before the people. What a flip. What a flip. Within 300 years of a homeless Jewish peasant proclaiming there are things that don't belong to see the Caesar, a Roman Caesar himself is being held accountable to that Jewish peasant's teachings. Wow. Leaders of nations, leaders of nations were now bowing to higher laws. Crazy, crazy. Before we tie off our teaching today, now what I want to do is I want to touch on one more important point. One more important point. And that's this. We just talked about how, how Jesus, part of his legacy, one important but small part of his legacy was, was how we see things differently, that there are things now that we know they don't belong to Caesar. Here's another thing that Jesus did and taught. Jesus connected people whom politics divided. I've got to touch on this point. Jesus connected people whom politics divided. Jesus wouldn't bow to Caesar, but neither did he advocate the, the major positions that people were taking in his day. There were groups when Jesus walked the earth like the zealots. And the zealots, they advocated violent solutions. The zealots were extreme nationalists. They were dedicated to ushering in the kingdom of God by overthrowing the Romans using almost any means. And when Jesus walked the earth, there was also a group called the Essenes that Jesus must have been aware of. And they believed everything. Everything had become so corrupt. What do we do? We withdraw. We isolate ourselves from the worldly corruption. And then there were the Sadducees and the tax collectors and the Herodians. And they said, man, Rome's not going anywhere soon. So let's collaborate. Let's get what we can. Let's make the compromises we've got to make. Each of these groups, the militant, the isolationists, the collaborators... Each of them, to some extent, were imitating the world that they were a part of. And then comes Jesus, who says, my kingdom isn't of this world. And he taught a different way, and he said, follow me. In the ancient world, your religion and your politics shared the same goals. You attempted to use both to help your friends and punish your enemies. Good thing no one does that today uses their political might to help their friends and punish their enemies. That's how it was in the, in the ancient world. That's what you did with politics, and you did that with your religion. Politics is well known. Everyone just went to war, and you defeated the people you didn't, you know, that you wanted to have control over. They did that with, they tried to do that with their, their gods, too. Uh, it's, it's fascinating when you see what archaeology says about this stuff. Uh, they had a find in what is, we now call England. And this dates to the first century. This dates to the time of Jesus. So this is happening in England while Jesus is teaching what he's teaching over in the Middle East. In England, they found this site. It was on a, um, a hot springs, a natural hot springs. And there were some Romans who went and settled in that area. And so these hot springs became a combination spa and uh, worship site. 
And one of the things that they found at this site were all of these tablets that were prayer tablets. And the archaeologists called them curse tablets. They called these prayer tablets curse tablets. Why do they call them curse tablets? Because they're almost all curses. That when you went to this place and you prayed to your God, what you did is you prayed that your God would curse your enemies. Here's an example of, of one of these. Uh, this, is, this is off of one of those tablets they found in, uh, in England. And I guess there's a whole bunch of these tablets. I have no idea how to pronounce this guy's name, so we'll call him Doc. Doc has lost two gloves. And Doc asks, again, this is all written out in this tablet. Doc asks for the person who stole his gloves. He asks that they should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. Amen. <laughs> now, you could, you know, maybe you could just pray, God, help me find my gloves, you know. But, but no, he, he loved his gloves and he wanted God to smite the person that took them. You know, I, I, I look at this and, and Jesus didn't teach us to pray like this. Jesus didn't teach us to pray like this. And in, in, in a big contrast, um, I was reminiscing with Mary earlier before the, the service. There she is. Um, when we were in Haiti, we were, Mary and I were in Haiti with uh, Tim Anderson and, and Brian Heyer. And we were staying at this place they called a guest house. It was a launching pad. You, you know, different groups would stay at this guest house, and then we'd launch off to do different things in, in Haiti. Well, we're staying at this guest house, and some group, a group that wasn't scheduled to come at that time came back because they were staying at another guest house. And while they were staying at that guest house one night, some, some men came to the door and, and started to break it down. And they had guns, and they were, they were, these people were scared. They were able to flee out a back window and hide in the dark while these guys with guns were looking for them. It was just a tense situation, you know. And so they come back, and they're, they're pretty shaken up. And so the other groups that were there, um, somebody with a mercy gift, maybe it was Mary, thought, let's pray for them, <laughs> That's a good idea. Let's do that. So, so we gathered around. We're praying for him. And, and certainly there are all the prayers of, of send your peace on these, these folks and thank you for delivering them from that situation. But then there was a, a switch that happened with our prayers. And I wish I could say it was me that <laughs> led us there. But people started praying for the men who had been pounding down the door, praying, God, would you reach them? Would you change their hearts? Would you redeem the rest of their lives? Would you change them in such a way where this, the, the rest of their life, they would do greater things for good than they've done so far for evil? It was just, it, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Fully acknowledging what they did was wrong, fully acknowledging all that stuff, but saying, God, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We acknowledge that as hard as it is. Would you touch these men? Would you change these men? What a difference. What a difference. That kind of prayer is, was foreign to most of the ancient world. In the ancient world, you prayed that your gods would help you bless your friends and destroy your enemies. And there's Jesus. You know, He said, bless your friends, but he also said, pray for those who persecute you. There's a deep wisdom here. There's a deep wisdom here. And it's picked up on by Abraham Lincoln. Let me show you this quote. This is so well said. Do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. Near the end of the Civil War, you know, he, he said these words when, when people were, the North were saying, let's go get him, let's, let's, let's destroy him. He says, well, don't I destroy him when I make him my friend? There's a deep wisdom there, a deep wisdom there. I've heard it said that two of the most powerful words in the human language are us and them. 
two of the most powerful language, words in the English language are us and them. And the world teaches us to respond to the thems of this world with violence or by isolating ourselves from them or by just collaborating. And Jesus showed us a different way. And then he said, follow me. He said to Simon, Simon, you're a zealot. You hate collaborators like tax collectors. Follow me. He said to Matthew, who was a tax collector. He said, follow me. He said, guys, you're going to be roommates. You're going to work this out. And fellas, here's our strategy. Here's how we're going to change the world. We're going to put our common desire to know and honor God. We're going to put that first. That comes first. That's going to be our unifying deal. We're going to put that above any of our political ideals. We're going to put that again above any of our other agendas. First and foremost, we're going to seek God and we're going to honor God. And then we're going to go out. And when we do, we're not going to have money. We're not going to have status. We're not going to have buildings. We're not going to have soldiers. And when people start hating on us, and they'll start hating on us, we're not going to back down, but we're not going to fight back. You're going to love them as I loved you. And then we're going to say, hey, guys, you join us. Ready? Cross on three. One, two, three, cross. (laughs) Okay. What kind of plan is that? It's a plan that worked. 12 became 120. 120 became 3,000. And in the blink of an eye, a Roman Caesar is submitting to a Christian bishop. Crazy strategy. But it worked. And not by political might or power, but by the Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit that was in Jesus, working through excuse me, his people. As we close today, I just want to leave you with this. Imagine this with me. Imagine a world in which everyone who expressed a personal faith in Christ rendered under Caesar what was Caesar's and rendered under God, unto God what was God's. If 12 men filled with the Spirit of Christ could change the world, what would happen right here if all of us made a commitment to do the same? To render under Caesar what was Caesar's, render under God what was God's. You know, what if, what if we rendered under Caesar what was his? I mean, I, I'm convicted by this one. I, I get so frustrated by our elected officials. So frustrated. So frustrated by them. Better stop now or I'll say that thing that I regret later, right? But how often do I pray for them, as the Bible instructs us to do? How often do I pray for them? And say, God, would you speak to them? Would you give them wisdom? Would you help them to learn to cooperate? and to talk, and to put the interests of, the, of others before themselves. And what if we loved those who, who disagreed with us politically? What if we prayed for those who positioned themselves up against us? And, and when we did that, what if then the world saw something different in us? What if they saw a wisdom? As we really learned to listen to the Holy Spirit, if we started to become very, very serious about that. I want to learn to know when it's God talking. Because the Bible does say, hey, don't worry when you get put into those Kobayashi Maru situations. I have to just say it without thinking, right? Um, don't worry, because I'm going to give you the words. What if we, what if we took him at, at that? And we learned to listen to the Holy Spirit, and, and words coming out of our mouth were words of wisdom, and the right words. What if? And, and what if? We prayed for these folks. And what if when people talk to Christians, they said, you know, at least Christians will listen. At least Christians will listen. They don't try to just ram down their beliefs. They listen. 
And what if when, when the world saw us, they saw that we really did care more about the common good than we did about our own agenda being advanced? Now, for the record, Christians are not called to be naive. We're not called to be naive. You do these things, and there's going to be a whole lot of people who don't listen. They didn't listen to Jesus. There are going to be a whole lot of people who hate on you. They hated on Jesus. We're not called to be naive. But we're called to do this because there will be some who do listen. There will be some who have ears to hear. There will be some that have eyes to see. And they're going to hear what we're saying. They're going to see what we're doing. And it's going to bring them a step closer to this new life and this new way. So what if we did that? What if we rendered under Caesar what was Caesar's? And what if we rendered under God what is God's? What if our primary allegiance was to him? And what if when people looked at us, they said, you know what? A Christian, they can't be bought. They can't be bribed. And they can't be intimidated. They're going to do what their God says regardless of what we say or what we do. What if they could see that we had one master and it wasn't Caesar? It was God. Imagine that. Well, that's the challenge I want to leave with you today. To render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render under God what is God's. Now, before we dismiss, we, we, we try to always pray a, pray a blessing over you as, you as you go forth. I want to build on, real quick, what um, that invitation that Joel gave. It's interesting. Um, Joel was sensing that we were supposed to pray in this way today, where we're supposed to in, ask people if they wanted to, to, to stand, and we could, we could put their hands on them. I mean, the, the Bible is oh, it's so full of wisdom. And, and, and I don't think... You know, it's so much about a magical way to pray as much as it's such a great reminder that God is with us, you know, when we do that together. And while Joel was having that impression, I was meeting with the, the, the elders on Tuesday night. And independently of that, we came to the conclusion that we should, this week, um, pray specifically in accordance with uh, something it says in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, um, it says this, is any of you among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And so we just want to be obedient to that. Not because it's a magical potion, but because the Bible says do it, so we want to do it. So we asked our elders, We asked Bridget, uh, who else, some of the other ones here too? Okay, well here, the way we'll, I can go on this side. So what we'll do is we're just going to join the prayer team. So when we dismiss, um, we'll pray that general blessing, but if you'd like some specific prayer about a specific thing, whether it's healing or something else, we'd love to, to offer you that opportunity as well. So there'll be people over on this side, and there'll be people over on that side. So let you know that that opportunity is there as well. All right, well, let's pray a blessing then as we all go forth. Please stand. Let me pray a blessing over us as we, as we go uh, from here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that, that you have given us this testimony to a different way to a different way, a better way. Lord, as we look at just the the craziness that we see in the ancient world that is still carried over into our world today, where where folks think that blessing only those who are your friends and beating up on those who are enemies is a good way to live. Lord, thank you for showing us there's a better way. Lord, now the hard part is for you to teach us what that means and what that looks like and to give us the power and strength to do it. So, Lord, would you bless us in that way as we go forth? Would you help us through your spirit to start to know what is Caesar's and what's yours? Would you help us to, when we want to respond one way, to respond in a wise way? Lord, would you give us those words that we can look back on and not regret, even if they were hard or it was something they didn't want to hear? And Lord, would you, would you help us to become even more unified than we are already? Would you teach us to, to, and help us to, to put you so first and foremost that anything else 
falls away in its importance next to you. Would you help us with that? Lord, I do pray a blessing over these folks and bring us back next week as we we dive again into your Bible and into your word. Will you you teach us again um, then as well? In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.